Okay, everybody, welcome. Welcome to this event um, organized by the LSE Middle East Center. My name is Michael Mason. I'm the director of the LSE Middle East Center. The, tonight's um, event is called Why Has Diplomacy Failed <coughs> in Yemen So Far? Maybe so far is the operative phrase there, given that events are happening very quickly. Um, so our speaker, I'll say a little bit in a moment about our speaker in detail, uh, Faria al-Muslimi from the Sanaa Center for Strategic Studies. Um, let me give you a little bit of a run-through of the format before I give you some details about our speaker, because we're going to try and do it a little bit differently tonight. Usually we have the speaker does a big sort of uh, talk to the audience and we cram in some questions at the end. But uh, Faria has kindly agreed that we will have a more of an interactive format which will open up more space for you as an audience to ask questions, which I think I'm, I'm, I'm certainly uh, uh, supportive of. And so I hope that works well. I'm sure you've all got lots of questions. Um, so that's the format. The, um, some of the things I have to tell you to do before we start, although these are probably common sense, please turn off your phones. Yeah, at least silent, please. Um, this is being recorded, this uh, um, event, audio recording. If you want to tweet about this event, I should tell you that as well. The hashtag is uh, hashtag LSE Yemen. Faria al-Muslimi is chairman and founder or co-founder of the Sanaa Center for Strategic Studies. He's an associate fellow at Chatham. He's got, actually got quite a long bio, so excuse me if I shorten <laughs> no, no, no. it. A distinguished long bio. He's an associate fellow at Chatham House. He's previously worked for the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut and the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. as a visiting scholar, where he covered Yemen and the Gulf. Um, in August 2016, he was appointed by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to the advisory group of experts for a progress study on youth, peace, and security, which was a study mandated by the UN Security Council to examine the positive contribution of youth to peace processes and conflict resolution. About time too, I might say. I'm very pleased to hear that you're on that, on that working group. And looking at the extent to which youth involvement in peace processes can cascade down from international, national to local levels. He's written, as I'm sure many of you know, if not all of you, written widely on Yemen and the region, published in uh, leading uh, media, English uh, language, Arabic media, national and international. And um, before I start, I thought it'd be nice for us all to welcome him here. Thank you. <laughs> now, this format, we're going to try a bit of an experiment, um, partly shaped by events, okay? Because often we have speakers and the, the topic is quite settled, but here events uh, are changing. Um, the, some of you might know that the Martin Griffiths, who is the UN Special Envoy for Yemen, who's been working hard to, to sort of get the peace negotiations away again, uh, uh, seems to have been successful at least in getting some kind of negotiations back on track. Uh, at the start of the week, he uh, made a request from the Saudi-led coalition to evacuate 50 wounded Houthi rebels to Oman, who were transported to Oman, which the Saudi-led coalition agreed to as a sort of uh, goodwill gesture. Um, this and other negotiations then led to, I think, the Houthi delegation flying, yep. they might be on in the air at the moment, yep. flying to Sweden 
for the first talks, peace, serious peace talks in two years. Um, so, as I said, the topic is why has diplomacy failed so far? I think even if, you know, uh, even if in all our prayers, this peace negotiation process actually does some, makes some serious progress, there's been a horrendous humanitarian cost of the failure of diplomacy to this point, even if it ends very soon, and let's hope it does. So um, I think a good starting question here is, 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 is for me to ask Faria, um, what has failed? Why is it taking so long to get to this point where lots of people be, seem to be working hard, to, uh, including Martin Griffiths, to get this sort of peace negotiation underway and the various parties to become engaged in a serious manner. Um, everybody's aware that was any outsider, and I'm sure none of you here need to be uh, reminded of, 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 of the, the, the atrocious cost uh, uh, in human life and suffering and damage to the economy, to society from the, from the current conflict. <laughs> And it seems to be a conflict in which nobody can win. So why has diplomacy not succeeded so far? So perhaps we'll start off with that question. Sure. Welcome again. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Michael and everyone. I, am, I feel both extremely happy to finally make it to London. This mm. is my first time and uh, honored to be at LSE. Um, though I feel extremely, uh, I must say, uh, uh, pressured that in the room there is some of the people I respect the most who work in Yemen to speak in front of them and I, that makes me a bit of a nervous. Um, some people I, I actually did my undergrad and the grad quoting them, not the least Helen. Um, but I'm, I'm, so that I must say that at the beginning. Um, other than that, why diplomacy has failed in Yemen? Uh, two reasons, in my opinion. Um, <clears throat> first is because we actually haven't tried diplomacy in Yemen. Um, something only fails when you try it. And uh, an example of that is for the last uh, 26 months, there was zero attempt of round of negotiation. Um, there wasn't anything to start with to be tried, so that we actually call it a failed. Um, and actually, in fact, even before this most recent war in Yemen started, it wasn't that there was zero hour or even, let's say, a threat that if you don't do this, we are going to go into a military intervention in Yemen. In fact, everyone around the world and millions of Yemenis woke up into a war. There was no diplomacy before it. There was thousands of Yemenis around the world actually waiting for their flights in airports um, and actually just suddenly woke up into a war. So actually diplomacy was not given a chance in Yemen to start with. Um, there was, if you look to the crisis of Saad al-Hariri, there was more diplomacy about it than about the worst humanitarian crisis in modern history. Um, and there was more diplomacy about recent events, including the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, including many things more than actually there was about uh, Yemen. So diplomacy in one section have not been tried actually out in Yemen. Um, and that's, that goes beyond the man, man Yemen and the region. That's the first reason, I believe. Second reason is uh, uh, the architect of diplomacy, the very few times or the very little that there was a diplomacy, the architect of it was actually fraud. Um, from many aspects of it, that it did not respond to the question. For example, you had, for example, in 2011, you had the GCC deal, and that's, that was a diplomacy, actually. The GCC deal was a diplomacy. And it wasn't a diplomacy that actually failed, but it was a diplomacy that led to a civil war, actually. Uh, it didn't ban a civil war or stop a civil war. It actually led into a civil war. That's because of how it was set um, and how, actually, the entire architect of this diplomacy existed. 
that goes in one side. Second problem or the second issue that goes with the architect of diplomacy is uh, 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 currently or right now, we have the United Nations leading a peace process in Yemen, which is important and it's actually probably the only legal and the only right way of diplomacy to go for, but it's incomplete. And it's something that the type of force we have around Yemen actually are type of war or conflict that cannot be solved by the United Nations alone by itself or for that simple reason. We go into another type of architect of diplomacy, which was the diplomacy of, of uh, uh, um, um, or, or the other architect of diplomacy that existed in Yemen after that was the Quad. The Quad is four countries, United Kingdom, United States, UAE, and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. And this Quad entity, four countries, who are actually on the same side, who are actually one side of the war, and working toward the peace resolution. The other side was not there, whom they claimed that they are actually fighting in Yemen. So you would talk to the UK, you would talk to the US, you would talk to the Saudi, and you say, okay, fair enough, you say that uh, uh, the Iranians are the problem in Yemen. Why don't you negotiate with them? They say, no, 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 we don't negotiate with them. Then what's happening? You're negotiating with yourself. So you had an entire architect of diplomacy that actually didn't, wasn't really thoughtful or wasn't actually really a clear answer what, what it was diplomacy about. But there is a larger, I think, a problem that goes beyond Yemen in the region. We ha there has been a, and, and the Quad is an example for that, but it wasn't the only example, that have in the region uh, hindered diplomatic attempts um, to solve a crisis. This goes, for example, to Astana when it comes to Syria. This goes to the Paris conflict, uh, Paris conference when it goes to, to uh, 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 Libya. Um, these are diplomatic entities that take the conversation from a real negotiation under the UN umbrella into the interest of countries and respond into the, contract, the, the interest of countries without actually responding to the conflict. So a combination of there was very little diplomacy and when it, the very little times or the very few times it was done or it was uh, attempted, uh, 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 it wasn't actually thought for. If that answers your first mm. question, I guess. Good, thank you. Uh, various questions we could carry on from that. One is about uh, the change in nature or conflict, which scholars here at LSE work on, and the extent to which the international diplomatic apparatus is able to keep up with the change in nature or conflict and whether it understands the, the need uh, to engage with actors in a different way, including non-state actors. Do you think the, the current sort of uh, framework for thinking about peace management, peace conflict, peace sort of uh, uh, achieving peace in Yemen and the region uh, needs to change in some sort of structural way? Hmm. Yes. I mean, if we look, for example, in today's, uh, just the news from today, for the first time, we have the group of the Houthis actually in the air heading to Sweden. That's a quite good, that's a quiet news. Or from a news point of view, I think this negotiation is going to, or right now, the UN envoy uh, had in his agenda three, uh, three topics. One is the exchange of prisoners between every side, which seems that have been signed by both sides. The Houthis signed that a few weeks ago, and yesterday the Yemeni government signed that. I think that will be the only thing that comes out of Sweden, if we are actually optimist. He has another two topics in it, which are, uh, uh, or, or two other agendas, which are the economic de-escalation. It doesn't seem to be his priority as much as the prisoners, but I think it's the most important one. And he has the second one, which is opening Sana'a airports, another example one. Um, he, I think most so far the Saudis are very uh, hard on reopening Sana'a airport. 
that doesn't seem it will go anywhere. The economic uh, situation is possible, but I don't think he will go um, or he's interested in it as much as the prisoners. And then we will end up with the prisoners. That's a, from a, a news point of view. From an architect point of view, I have, I mean, I, even from the, the current uh, uh, framework of negotiation, we have the United Nations leading this uh, uh, conflict or lead, leading this conflict resolution in Yemen. There is a three or four main problems with that framework at the moment, with that framework. However, we only have that framework. That's the problem. Um, the first problem is when the United Nations led a conflict resolution model in Yemen, it led the political transition in 2011. And that political transition led to a civil war. Hmm. So actually, it didn't solve. There was no civil war. There was a political process led by the UN, ultimately led it into a civil war. That's the problem. Second, the, the problem in Yemen, uh, or I think probably in the region entirely, are conflicts that no more can be solved by the United Nations. The United Nations as an entity was created to solve conflicts between countries. And the type of conflicts we face today are conflicts mostly within countries, not between countries. And that's another problem. For example, the Swedish, actually to this meeting in Stockholm today, they thought of inviting the Iranians. And at one point, Martin said, no, 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 I don't want that to happen. Um, which probably he's right. That's not his mandate, that's not his work, and that's not his scope of space. However, there is no way you can solve the Yemen conflict without uh, uh, involving all regional actors. So what do you need here? You need another model that's not necessarily uh, deadlocked by the United Nations. This applies or, or by the bureaucracy of the United Nations and by the problems of it. You look out of 44 conflicts the United Nations was uh, assigned in solving, it solved four out of 44 in the world so far. Um, that's not a quite an impressive number when you think about it. Um, but it's not necessarily its fault. Um, I have personally did a lot of work with, with the, on the United Nations and very critical about its role in Yemen. But I think with, when it comes to the United Nations, uh, uh, specifically and the current frame of diplomacy, uh, we are facing similar, or one can borrow the fa famously attributed the quote to Churchill when he says, democracy is the worst possible governance system except for everything else. Mm -hmm. And that applies to the UN. Um, I think in many ways it's too bureaucratic. It takes a lot of money and a lot of time. Um, sometimes it, uh, it, it, and, 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 and sometimes it brings a Brexit or a Trump, but it's the only thing we got. Uh, it's very dangerous, I insist, of taking conflict resolutions outside of the United Nations. Um, so what do we do? I think is we reframe um, the way that currently it's approaching these conflicts and looking into them um, in, in, in many ways, whether in Yemen or in outside Yemen or outside Yemen in the region entirely. Um, out of my number one evidence I look or, or examples is the FARC in Colombia. That there wasn't a United Nations involvement there, actually. Um, I mean, there was very light. It was probably CC'd, maybe BCC'd in that agreement. But ultimately, it didn't lead this, this, this agreement of peace. Um, if you look to the region, to Taif Agreement in Lebanon, which ended 15 years of war, um, there was no UN involvement in it. Again, I'm not calling for the deadlock or for the uh, blocking of multi-international systems, but having more thoughtful, more comprehensive, and more dynamic uh, and less bureaucratic uh, uh, conflict resolution models. One of the um, areas I have an interest in is international humanitarian law and one of the systems one of the governance systems that we go to in a conflict is is the laws of war 
because although I say to my students it sounds very paradoxical there will be laws of war, but there are. And the Yemen conflict has reinforced, compounded this, this uh, um, terrible situation where it's always been uh, a challenge to observe, to uh, enforce international humanitarian law, but it seems in the last decade or so, and, and you know, we can think about Syria as well, for example, where the, the intentional targeting of civilians, of civilian infrastructure, the, 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 the sorted violations, which perhaps until a few decades ago, we thought that the international system had kind of reached a, a situation where at least there were certain norms that were recognized and observed, at least by states, we can say, yeah. And we seem to, have we reached a tipping point now in terms of international humanitarian law? International humanitarian law is still there. Uh, it's, it's being breached flagrantly all over the place. And one of the issues then is the, uh, uh, the space for action for actors like the Red Cross, the ICRC, whose usual uh, mode of operation is to talk behind closed doors with the various actors to try to get practical results, is whether, has Yemen taught us anything new about international humanitarian law that it's just another example of its, its violation? Well, I'm not an expert in international law, but what I know is uh, Al-Qaeda, United States of America, Saudi Arabia, and the Houthis have bombed funerals, weddings, um, and have targeted civilians in all times. That's an armed groups and militias. Um, have targeted more than one time civilian areas and have purposefully in many times uh, 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 harmed civilians and have respected no, no, no rules of this war. Um, the one thing I would say that probably is interesting in Yemen's case uh, from a, an international uh, human, humanitarian law and war law is this new technique of starvation mm. um, as a war. Mm. What's happening in Yemen, everyone is saying Yemen is starving. Yemen is not starving. Yemen is being starved. Someone is doing it, someone is doing it purposefully, and someone has a goal out of it. Um, the, the siege that are being imposed from outside Yemen by their co led coalition, the siege that are being led internally by the Houthis on Ta'is, are ultimately, uh, I think, if lawyers and international humanitarian law should look into it, but probably, because I'm not an expert in this, but probably it can uh, end into a genocide by starvation of points. Um, the Yemeni former prime minister last year threatened when he, not last year, in late 2016, after he removed the central bank uh, of Yemen from Sana'a to Aden, he threatened that he will not pay the salaries of the public uh, uh, employers inside the Houthis territory, which is actually a war crime, um, to use it as a starvation. Um, and he actually, that was the only a promise he committed to. Um, more than two million Yemenis have not been paid, um, uh, more than 1.2 million Yemenis have not been paid their salaries for more than uh, two years, and that actually have led into a more starvation and into a more destruction in Yemen than the war directly itself. Um, so yes, you have a, a very, uh, in a free labor market or in a free market, you have a huge competition of war crimes in Yemen that applies to or that is being competed among armed groups and uh, states along wise regionally and internationally. I mean, um, we can ask in this country why a nation, at least publicly, that claims it's an exponent of and even a champion of international humanitarian law, the UK, 
that it's not either uh, reflecting more deeply or being challenged more vigorously, or that I know civil society is challenging it in terms of its own, our own complicity in some of these violations. Um, I'll leave that there for the moment. We'll come back to that. But because I want to think about the regional context, and you, and you mentioned uh, Jamal Khashoggi's murder. And I'm wondering there, has that changed the regional dynamic at all? Because some are seeing in the US, for example, you might have seen uh, um, at the weekend, uh, just for the weekend, the US Senate um, voting to uh, um, take measures against Saudi Arabia. Um, and there's a certain about the only thing that Republicans and Democrats can agree on now in America, actually, at the senior level, seems to be some sort of uh, uh, sanctions against uh, Saudi Arabia, or at least against uh, Mohammed bin Salman. But some are sensing that the Americans you could use this as some kind of leverage and are using this as leverage against the Saudis to, to be more seriously mm. engaged in a strategy where we reach some kind of uh, if not peace, some kind of management of the mm. conflict in Yemen. Do you see that? Do let me say three things on Jamal's case. Um, first, there is always a leverage the UK and the US has on the Saudis if they're serious on pressuring them. Uh, it's just basically an excuse. Um, it has been that there is no leverage. If, and we saw this recently, if the United States of America have shut three years ago instead of two months ago or one month ago, the refueling of the Saudi airplanes, they would have shut down half of their airstrikes slash half of their crimes in Yemen slash half of their mistakes in Yemen. So there is always a leverage. This was a, an excuse. Now, on Jamal specifically, the West, UK and US are more vocal on it, which is surprising because I think it's a telling of how media works, how public opinion works and how international advocacy works. But the, the West is more vocal on it because this is probably one of the very few crimes happened in the region the West is not involved in. Um, and so it's, only, it's a clearly a Saudi crime and we are out of this. Mm -hmm. On Yemen's war, they have been wearing gloves and it's worse what has been happening in Yemen, you know, being of funerals and stuff. But again, they weren't part of it, so they had no, no, no space to lecture um, on, on this stuff overall. That's one thing to, 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 to remember, or that I find it fascinating mm. even as a researcher. Mm. Second, um, I knew Jamala pretty well, actually. I remember when, when in the beginning of the year and, and, and of the war and the two years after it, he actually was very pro the war on Yemen. I remember showing in, in, in Sana'a, I would be quoted in an international media story or in a TV interviews, and he's uh, in Saudi cheering for the war, actually, from Riyadh, um, the war on Yemen. He was 100% with his government. He just wasn't 100% and percent with his government. Um, and that's, I think, what's a terrifying or the legacy or the tendency that this uh, horrifying crime have brought is it, it is, you know, you're, you, you have to be with us more than we, we are with ourselves. And that's the message it sends domestically, regionally and internationally. Third, on, on, on Jamal, I think, and this is something I've seen it personally in the region. Look, before his murder, this isn't the first, you know, crime against uh, uh, journalism in the region. It wasn't a rosy, pinkish environment at all. And we have seen that. I've seen personally, I've been deported of Bahrain. I've seen some of my best friends, one of them, an investigative journalist, Yemen's most famous investigative journalist, Mohammed Al-Absi, was poisoned for working on a war economy. His dinner, dinner was poisoned. I've, some of my colleagues have been arrested in Sana'a, in Aden. Um, I, there's still 15 journalists 
uh, in Sana'a being present by the Houthis, actually, even today. Um, and so it was always an ugly environment we work in. But uh, there was, but what's different in my opinion this time is uh, uh, even that danger, especially I think even for me as a young man, it was always a motive. It actually uh, inspired us to do more. The risk was part of the drive. Um, but this was the first time, I, I think everyone told themselves, not just myself, that, oops, this can happen to me. Um, and that's probably the terrifying trend um, that it has uh, created. So many people started to censor themselves. Um, this is a story where we have not seen stuff like this even in movies, in horror movies, when you watch it. And I think what it has done to people, in that sense, actually, Saudi achieved their goal. Um, uh, 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 of killing him, which is making people silent, making people not even there to think, um, and actually creating a tendency that haven't been in the region before that, um, or, 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 or something like that um, ever existed. So yes, it's a murder of journalism, um, and I think it, what, what it sets out um, is, is a pretty dangerous, because it means if you can get away with a crime, mm. you know, and televised one, a reality show, horror movie, then there is, you can get away with anything else. Um, there is one thing that we can do with this, or we can look into it. Maybe if there is enough uh, pressure, uh, uh, the Saudis can do one thing to try to fix their reputation, which is end Yemen's war. Um, that's the only thing probably one should push them, or I think is possible for them to fix this uh, to try, I mean, it's unfixable when one thinks about it, but actually to demonstrate that this wasn't, you know, a tendency and this wasn't a legacy that they're trying to start in the region. Um, and this isn't exclusive to them. You see the Syrian Bashar al-Assad, how he have lived in horrifying crimes. I met recently an Iranian uh, researcher, she did her master about feminism um, in the University of Tehran, and she wrote an entire thesis without using the word feminist, about feminism entire thesis and she had to push into that <laughs> and, and, and just to give you a, a snapshot of how the region is um, and if they get away with this everyone else will get away with everything else um, that's happening in, in our part of the world. I do hope that it's a moment uh, to raise attention into the atrocities that's happening in the region by these reckless regimes um, but everyone is saying you know MBS will have to pay for this what can he pay for this? What, what is the price? What is the price if he stays in a crown, in, 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 as a crown prince? I don't see any other price he actually paid for. Um, it's hard to believe that there is a way where things remain as they are and that someone has been punished for this, um, if that makes sense. Thank you. I, I did mention the UK, so perhaps we should go back to the UK. I'm sure some of you here maybe are from other UK government or civil society organisations involved maybe in campaigning on this issue. I'm interested to, to hear from you your perception of, of the UK's role in, in the conflict, other than providing arms to one side. I think when one looks to the arm industry between the, not just the UK and the US and the Saudis, and, but the entire region and between all the Western countries, uh, the arms are the least problematic thing actually compared to everything they are doing um, in our part of the world. Um, the UK is a pin holder at UN Security Council in Yemen, uh, pin holder slash war holder. Mm. 
Um, it has blocked every other UN Security Council resolution by other countries in the last three or four years, until last month, where they are trying to do something, uh, from moving uh, uh, toward ending this war. Um, uh, there has been uh, not just the UK, the US, and actually the Russians. This is one thing that's surprising, actually, what, what we keep forgetting. What the UK and the US are doing for the coalition in Yemen in supporting him is exactly the same thing the Russians are doing in supporting the, the Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Exactly the same thing uh, in matter of, you know, blocking any possible veto, blocking any possible accountability, and most importantly saying if you can afford to buy more weapons, you can do whatever you want. Um, and again, this is dangerous a trend, I think, for the region um, and, and uh, uh, entirely. This is interesting in Yemen's case specifically. Because even if we go back to the greatest thing, in my opinion, have been done in matter of diplomacy, our topic, in the region, which is the Iran deal, three years ago, which was a quite a good, a good uh, for the regional and international security. I think it was a good deal. But even that diplomacy, there was one price paid for it. What was that price? Yemen's war. From a Yemen, it's, it has been a double problem that by that time, the Saudis were very frustrated, so that you can do it. Fine, go to Yemen and let us go to Tehran. Um, so it has been a pretty problematic rule. Um, um, uh, uh, right now, I am less pessimist on the UK rule, not because I'm gambling on any morality in international relations, not that naive, but um, because the current envoy is the UK. Um, and I think any failure of him will actually be a failure of the UK. Um, and you can fail in many things, but when you fail in, a, in, 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 in diplomacy in a region and you're a P5 country, that's a probably an unfixable um, damage to your image and to your uh, entire strategic uh, 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 interest and power and influence in the region. Thank you. I want to open up. I just want to get one question in, excuse me, for being selfish, because you mentioned the Iran deal. So I just wanted to ask you about Iran's role. I know this might be a big question, particularly its relationship with the, with the Houthi rebels. What's Iran doing? Well, we know what they're doing, but what's going on there in terms of Iran's so there are two, two, before we jump into, into uh, Iran uh, specifically, there are two bad things that have happened in my opinion the last year, and maybe some in this room would agree. One was the Brexit and one was the end of the Iran uh, deal. Uh, from Yemen's point of view, that's actually good news. Uh, one, uh, because the Iran deal right now is possibly Iran, the fact it's done, or let me start actually with the Brexit because it's shorter. Um, <laughs> The Brexit, for the last three years, um, the UK was the number one country blocked the European Union uh, from being active in Yemen. Uh, it blocked it. Uh, there was 27 meetings. In, there was a committee within the EU Parliament to meet on Yemen and Syria. They met 27 times in Syria and twice in Yemen. And always there was one elephant in the room blocking that meeting. Um, and, 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 and we know who's that. Um, so actually, kind of for the first time, you have the EU more free. Um, than it was in the past and more vocal and actually probably it can do something. I'm not sure it will. Uh, but from that point of view, actually, it's less uh, taken by the UK narrative, which has been a quite a problematic one uh, or a quite a problematic narrative. Um, second, when the Iran deal started again, Yemen war was the price of it. Um, but probably right now, Iran is willing. I know there are meetings, the E4 countries right now and, and a few other countries working talking to Iran to say, look, if you want us to save the Iran deal, um, or at least maintain the European 
part of it, you have to behave in Yemen. Um, and Iran is actually willing to behave in Yemen. If you ask them to behave in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, not in their dead body. In Yemen, they might give it a thought. Um, they might give it a chance. Uh, or they might actually think about it. Uh, and from that point of view, if Yemen, if, if ending their uh, problematic intervention in Yemen, or a problematic role in Yemen, to be accurate, um, if they find that that's the price to maintain the Iran deal, that's actually a very cheap price for the Iranians. That's one thing. When it comes now, and thus I find it a, an, an entrance to explain the Iran-Houthi relationship, because it's not as strategic as everyone thinks. It's not Hezbollah for them. The Houthis would like to think of themselves as Hezbollah. I mean, that's a lot of wishful thinking. That's a lot of wishful thinking by them. That's a lot of wishful thinking by the Saudis. And that's a lot of wishful thinking by um, the, the Europeans and the Americans. The Houthis will never be Hezbollah. They're not even a clumsy version of Hezbollah. I mean, it's uh, seriously, because when you think about it, even from a political point of view, Hezbollah will hijack a state. The Houthis destroy the state. Uh, the, 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 uh, Hezbollah will use the state. Um, and will actually have its folks inside it and so on. But the Houthis are not like any other thing we have seen. I wish they were that smart, actually, as Hezbollah, and actually that sneaky and tricky. Uh, this is something, a very, very different conversation. Now, Iran looks to Yemen and to the Houthis exactly the same way the Americans and British looks to Yemen, believe it or not. What does that mean? Uh, uh, to, to the UK and to the US, uh, they have offshored Yemen politics to the Saudis. To them, Yemen is a Saudi domestic policy. Whatever the Saudis say, we will go after it. Iranians have offshored Yemen to Hezbollah. Hmm? So whatever Hezbollah says on Yemen, or whatever Hezbollah works on Yemen, it's actually even the number one main contractor uh, in their eyes in Yemen. It's not the, the Houthis uh, directly. There's a lot one can say about the Houthis um, and the Iranian, and, and the Iranian uh, relationship. Um, at any U-turn, at one point, I believe, the Houthis and the Iranians are in a competition who will ditch the other first, who will make the most out of actually sealing this relationship. It has been a pretty abusive and complicated one. If they were friends on Facebook, the relationship would be it's complicated. <laughs> it's much more than you think. Um, and it's actually something, uh, uh, and this is what's really tragic about this war and what's really self-defeating in its purpose. This war has not made Iranians weaker in Yemen. It actually has increased the essentiality of the Houthi-Iranian relationship. Um, it actually has, there are two things that usually, or in my opinion, can defeat Iran in Yemen. That's uh, peace and strong state. And what this war has done uh, is destroyed both peace and state institutions. And of course, for the Iranians, that's big. There is another thing that if you are the Iranian thinking about it, uh, uh, to them, Yemen is a very, very, very cheap environment to consume the Saudis. They're very sure they will throw $1 and the Saudis will throw $1 million. So by the Iranian math and by the world math and by algebra and calculus, that's a big victory. Um, for the Iranians in the long term. Again, the Houthis would like to think of them of themselves, and even you see the entire propaganda and the entire media and so on, trying to act like the Iranians, but uh, that is not as it seems, in my opinion. Good, thank you. We've had about 45 minutes of this interactive part, so what I want to do now is, is open out to the audience. 
So I'll just take hands. If you're towards the back, uh, if you're at the front as well, try and speak as uh, clearly as possible. We usually ask you to identify yourself when you ask a question. That's not compulsory. If you prefer not to, that's fine. Uh, but it's nice for us to know anyway. Okay, and you, here, lady here. Yes. Kingdom stop the uh, trade, uh, arm trade with Saudis. Uh, Do you think this would have an effect on the on the war? Because according to them, it would have no effect at all whether they stop the trade or not. I mean, when when if you are the Saudis or the Qataris or whoever you are, and you buy weapons from the United Kingdom <coughs> or the US. The way how you will use this weapon, in my opinion, is the least problematic compared to what you are buying. What you are buying is the UK silence. What you are buying is a UK okay. And that's more dangerous, in my opinion. Um, it's, I mean, we have, and I have heard this argument even in Canada. I was in Canada for 21 days. Or even that in the US. You hear the argument saying, okay, well, even from a pragmatic point of view, you say, uh, um, you know, they say, well, the thing is, this is jobs. We create a lot of jobs from a domestic point of view. And I say, sure, you know, you can make job of murder. You can make job of robbing banks. You can make job of many other terrible ways. Um, now, should the UK or should the deals stop? Of course, and it should stop. Uh, but again, there are so many other terrible things also needs to stop in addition to the armed deals. Um, and this is one thing that I think even explains the refugees. Uh, crisis. When you send weapons, let's say, to an area, there is fighting, and there is problems, and there is weak states, and there is war, you shouldn't be surprised if people flee from there, whether that's uh, Aleppo or Wales, uh, or wherever it is, people will start turning out from there. So yes, I mean, it will, I think, weaken the Saudis, but of course they will always be able to buy from anywhere, but what they buy is more than just the weapons. What they buy is the silence. And that's the most dangerous. It says, you know, even when you look, for example, to going back to your point of Jamal Khashoggi's murder, there is a trend happening in the West. If you're Mohammed bin Salman and you wake up every morning, who's your role model? Donald Trump. And you look to Donald Trump and every morning he's talking fake media, fake journalism, and he's all the time in a war with journalists. Then you say, ah, okay, I can do whatever you want. Even Godfather actually hates these people. Um, and you actually, of course, you come up with a very wrong conclusion. But that's a trend, and in my opinion, the indifference, the set of mind that you can get away with anything if you have cash, is even more killing um, than the direct weapons that the West is selling to the region overall. Thank you. Next question. What's the, what's, what potential is there for a change in the state of play in actual fighting to have a positive or negative impact on the negotiation? You know, this idea that, like, Diplomacy becomes important in a war when one side is about to win. So mm. they're suddenly like, let's talk about how I'm winning, basically, or how mm. I've won. Mm -hmm. talk, you know, maybe has, has basically. I guess my question is: Has diplomacy failed because no side has won yet? There will never is there be any. A stalemate, or will no one ever win? There, no one will ever win. This is Yemen, oh. and in, in, in Yemen, you sometimes win when you look like you lost, and sometimes you lose when you actually look like you would. It's a, it's a different set of mind or different math that this country runs on um, than the usual one. That's theoretically speaking. Uh, 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 realistically and demographically and geographically speaking, no one is actually will be able to win in Yemen. Um, this is 
tough battle even if you take Hudaydah even if you take يعني let's say tomorrow you take Sa'dah you take Sana'a from the Houthis which is a lot of wishful thinking anything for the Houthis post Sa'dah is an extra credit like anything that happened to me, to them after Sa'dah is actually a lot of win even if they are still in that group it's, it's a different game but there is one thing I think will will have a lot of impact negatively or positively um, in the next phase if it happens whether on this uh, round of negotiation or in any upcoming rounds. Uh, and that's Hudaydah battle. Uh, if Hudaydah goes forward, that we are going to look into two years of round of war um, and two years of, of mess. And that will be uh, probably the, uh, the, the, the Russian gun you pull into your head. Um, and it has, you know, and except this Russian gun has six bullets in it, not just one. Um, and that, that's, that's the number one, I think, in factor that will determine whether we are going to go into war or peace in Yemen, and let's wait for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, quick follow-up. Is, is, is the idea that the UN, has the UN ever overseen a process where it's negotiating the state being like divided, divided up, or I don't know, how, how, does, it, how does this end if there's no military end in sight, which is what wars are supposed to have? What's the UN supposed to be trying to do? Should it, should it be, you know, what's it, is there some partitioning in mind? No, I mean, it's not partitioning, but I think the Houthis, if you dig deep and you're focused in Yemen, the Houthis' reason for this war, the main one, was federalism. They were against, they went, they went centralization. They don't want to, then, and that's, that's actually what drove them into unity with Saleh at one point. It was that they didn't want to lead Sana'a, they wanted to, they had the illusion that they still can, can control Sana'a or Yemen from Sana'a. Uh, that's weaker now, and that's over. Um, especially with Saleh's death. Um, I think the Houthis are so much weaker by killing Saleh, more than what people actually look like. They're not stronger by after they killed Saleh, they're actually weaker uh, after they killed him. So, and then you have another issue, which is the South, um, which also has its own, or wants its own state and so on. Something like a federalism slash confederalism, maybe it will be federalism, but you will call it confederalism to make some people happy, maybe the opposite, whatever it takes, but something within this framework is what the problem looks like. I, I don't think Yemen is Libya or Syria. The war in Yemen is, there's a possibility to solve it. There is an ability to solve the Yemen war, except there is no will. Um, uh, most of the, and, and this is again, we are now we have witnessed over the last 15 months, since November or before that, August, 2017, we have witnessed a super bloody end of honeymoons between all partners, uh, between the Saleh and the Houthis, between Qatar and the Saudis and UAE regionally, between the STC, the Southern uh, Transitional Council in the South and the Hadi government, between some of the Saudis and Mahra and the, some of the Omani alliance. So from a conflict resolution point of view, everyone is tired of their friends more than of their enemies. And in my opinion, that creates a window uh, for new, uh, 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 for new or for a possibility of peace, except that it needs a, a deal maker, and that deal maker needs support, and that support is in one place, the P5. Huh? The P5 have to have a buy-in into peace in Yemen. So far, they have had a lot of buy-in into war in Yemen. Mm? If they have a buy-in into peace in Yemen, I think we are able to solve it easier than Syria and easier than. Libya or any other conflict in the region. Thank you. The next, and wait, I know there's lots of hands, but we've got plenty of time, so I'm going by order that I see at the back by the door. Hi, I'm Ali 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 Ali
um, from Oxfam. Thank you for the comments about women being starved with one of our big campaigns. Yep. Um, very much agree with you on, on most of the points. I wanted to ask a question about um, the role of Russia, because originally they abstained in the resolution back in 2015, and then since then they've been fairly the truth is I don't know much about Russia um, or especially about its role in the region in Yemen specifically I do know that there are two uh, powers right now in the region that are eating popcorns that ir that's Iran and Russia um, they have looked into every decision the West have made, and it has been something backfired on, on, on the West um, from in many, in many levels um, in, and, in, and, and in many ways. To Russia, they had also one calculation, which is they used the Yemen war to justify their military intervention in Syria. And they abstained. They got also their share of the cash cow, and they just kept it zipped. But then when the, their military intervention came to Syria, even their ambassador to the UN Security Council said by that time, in one of the sessions, closed sessions, he said, well, at least the president who invited us to intervene in Syria is inside Syria. Hmm? <laughs> which, which, again, I mean, can't really argue much against that um, logic. Um, so it has been that. They had some sort of fantasy in the past with Saleh, because most of Yemen's army actually weapons were came from Russia. Um, they left totally, totally and even if you look to their diplomatic architect in Yemen during the war, um, they had their ambassador in Riyadh, and they had their deputy ambassador in Sana'a, actually there. And it was the last embassy in Sana'a in addition to the Iranians um, until, until December 2017. Believe it or not, but the Russian embassy in Sana'a was the number one source of information for the Western countries, hmm? uh, actually for the last two years of, of the war. Um, after uh, Saleh was killed, the Houthis stormed the Russian embassy, looking for Talaq, Tariq Saleh and for other uh, families, uh, family members of Saleh. Um, and that's when the Russia said, OK, you guys are on your own. Bye-bye. Uh, and they left. Um, our war economy, we did a big report on this recently at Sana'a Center published. Uh, my knowledge and our <coughs> information we have found is there were also uh, some weapons, uh, believe it or not, bought from Russia for the Houthis. Uh, but again, as part of the war economy, they actually were bought by a uh, fixer who is actually with the government um, in, in, in Riyadh um, and actually held with them. So, yeah, I mean, making some benefits here and there and so on, but watching uh, at the West shooting at themselves um, in, in Yemen and elsewhere in the region, more or less. Um, and and I, again, I really don't know much on, on Russia specifically. It's not my specialty. Okay, this side at the back, yellow T-shirt. Yes, thank you for your presentation. Um, I just wondered if you have any comments on I have no idea and I doubt it. I mean, if you think about it uh, in Yemen, uh, you don't need to go use chemical weapons if you're the Saudis. You know, you have already good weapons from the US and the UK to kill enough children. Um, you don't need to run to chemical weapons. I doubt that information. I have no, no information in that sense. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks for the presentation. I was just wondering what your, sorry, two quick questions. Um, I was wondering what your prescription would be for a lasting peace in Yemen. So would it be a strong centralized state or would it be a federalized state with, with uh, you know, the Houthis in the north and then the southern federation or something? And then the second question was about 
the Houthis and their presentation and their relationship with Iran, and whether they have changed the way in which they present themselves over the past four years. And because I know that they, their TV station now runs from Beirut, they have very strong links with Hezbollah. So have they tried to shift their image to make themselves look more like the Iranians and, uh, and Hezbollah since the beginning? I mean, uh, on, on the first question, I mean, the United Nations and the entire world cannot answer that question. You, know, you think I can answer it? You know, what's, what's a lasting peace in Yemen? Um, it's a quite a big question. I mean, you know, what I know is, uh, again, as I said at the beginning, I don't think we have a tried peace in Yemen. And, and the diplomacy, go back to diplomacy, between 2011, by the way, and 2014, there was no Saudi embassy in Yemen. Can you believe that? For uh, three years. They left the country even open for Qatar and for Iranians. Um, and there was no embassy there from the Saudis. Um, there is a lot of things, I think, that will add into peace in Yemen. Um, one of it is a regional commitment that not to use Yemen as a dispute front line. Um, there is another problem, which is, in my opinion, to continue the dialogue that was happening in 2013 and 14 about the shape of the state. Uh, but in matter of a strong state, a, a central state, I think there was one thing that started Yemen, the war in Yemen, or one of the main things, and that's a central state. Yeah? That illusion is over, and any attempt to undo that uh, will actually lead into more conflicts. Um, but we are speaking of some sort of a thoughtful federalism, thoughtful, I don't know what you call it, in which you know, every region of the country, but actually will thought of, not the vision that they presented at NDC, which is a, a vision that was done in one week, um, actually. Um, that will actually help into a lot of factors. Um, and, and we need more commitment uh, from the region. Imagine how much, uh, uh, I mean, right now, let me give you an example, not just about peace, but also about humanitarian crisis. <laughs> Qatar put $15 billion to save the Turkish lira um, and in one night, in one shot. And uh, Yemen has been a starving but for three years, four years, and the Gulf hasn't even put half of that money um, in, in, in matter of aid and development huh? and matter of even saving the currency. And this is something, if you think about it strategically, will save them a lot of time and a lot of money in the long term. So these are a combination of factors. I wish I have a recipe of peace. You know, I will, I will tomorrow uh, die in peace if I die, if, you know, if what it looks in Yemen. But it's, again, it takes, at the beginning, a commitment. And that commitment is not there on any level whether regional, whether international, or whether from even uh, a, a political uh, point of view and local uh, political point of view. On the Houthis changing their narrative, that's a very good question. Yes, they actually have become more radical, they actually have become more sectarian, and they actually have been more aggressive, and they have embraced uh, the sectarianism uh, because they weren't that way. If you dig deep in the Houthis, they are, once, they are the only... Shia to school that is not a twelfer. So they always were actually, Zaydism was very distinguished uh, from the other schools of Shia in, in the entire Islamic world. But that's not the case the last three years. They have imposed a deep Iranian, a deep Hezbollah, even ceremonially, even policies, and even security grid into the country. Um, that is of definitely making the country worse and worse. They have even imposed sometimes a new school syllabus. Um, that is very hardcore sectarian, very hardcore twelfer, um, and that doesn't apply just to their uh, uh, um, uh, sectarian uh, enemy or, or, or rival, like you know, kind of forcing it on the Sunnis, but even forcing it on the Zaydis themselves. 
um, who are also the Houthis comes from. So definitely, yes. They have been always uh, had the TV in uh, Beirut. It's not new. Uh, it's uh, been from long term. Um, and uh, yes, they're learning, trying to learn again from Hezbollah. And they are definitely in the route of being uh, their radical virgin square um, in, in many ways and in many levels. That on the long term <coughs> will be one of the biggest threat into the security and social harmony of Yemenis and religious tolerance. I, 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 that is one of my biggest concerns as a Yemeni. Okay, I've got in this side of the room, in the middle. Um, do you think we can separate out UAE strategic goals in Yemen from Saudi's? Good question. Um, so when UAE started, went into the war in Yemen, it wasn't excited. It just showed up because all their brothers said, hey, come on, I need you to be with me. I know for sure it was actually not really excited. But then as the war continued, they started to develop their agenda. Um, they visited the ports, and they're attractive. Especially, they look really nicer from the other end, from Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Djibouti. So they started developing their own agenda. Um, I know four to five facts about this. One, UAE, whether on Yemen or on outside Yemen in the region, will never disagree with Saudi. It's too expensive for them. Whether they, are, they like it or they don't like it, they will always be in the Saudi book, at least publicly. Hmm? Second, when it comes to Yemen, however, and this is my second, when it comes to Yemen specifically, there is few things different between Saudi and UAE. Saudi has 1,500 kilometers of borders with Yemen. UAE doesn't, doesn't have any border with Yemen. So tomorrow it can back back and go, and go home. That puts already a very different set of mind, um, including that Saudi, uh, UAE is more adventurous in Yemen, contrary to Saudi, who is actually more or less adventurous in matter of, in another word, uh, the UAE wouldn't mind uh, 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 trying to test out more than one state in Yemen. Uh, the Saudis, no. They only want one headache from Yemen. They can't afford more than one headache. That's to them is a different school of thought. Um, the Saudis also have invested more and will invest more. The type of alliances also is very different between the Saudi and, and UAE in Yemen, their alliances. The Saudis' number one alliance is the Islah, Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and um, the UAE number one enemy is the Islah, Muslim Brotherhood. That's why even from a political scientist point of view, this war is hilarious. It's a self-defeating, I mean, if it wasn't for people dying. Because you, you're in a war in Yemen, your number one ally is the Islah, and your number one enemy is the Islah. Like, something doesn't add up here, you know? What, what's, what's this going on? Um, so that these, these are things I think one should look into uh, when thinking forward, uh, or when, when trying to differentiate uh, 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 between Saudi and UAE. I will, however, quote uh, the chief security of Aden. I saw him in September, mid-September, Ashallah Ali Shayah, who is UAE number one ally, and I asked him this question. I said, do you talk to, you know, what's the difference between the UAE support and, or the UAE and Saudi in Yemen? And he says, they're one head with two eyes. Um, you know, uh, and I think that that's probably one of the most accurate statements into it. Except again, they move from very different set of minds. UAE based less, um, UAE is smaller, um, and UAE is benefiting from this war more than it's losing. It's a present Saudi is losing more than it's benefiting from this war so far, in my opinion. Especially, at least in presenting its credentials internationally. The Saudis, UAE right now, have and are organizing a lot of security operations and raids. Uh, with the Trump, sometimes in coordination with the UK government also. 
um, and that definitely increases uh, uh, their cards within the West. Uh, Yemen is one of their uh, start-up security projects, more or less. Not that they will, they will succeed, but they have a, that's, in my opinion, how they are looking into it. So to build up on that, uh, we've seen <coughs> new sort of activity of Oman in, in Mahra and, and that part of Yemen. Where do you think Oman fits in, in all this, in the conflict, and, and have they developed a sort of new strategy as, as the war has been progressing? Uh, the Oman activity in Mahra are not new. They are just visible now. Hmm? Uh, they were always active in Mahra. They were active more than the Yemeni government. Mahra to them was uh, another province. And it's closer to them demographically than, and actually most of the people in Maharaya, or at least a good person, have both an Omani and uh, uh, Yemeni citizenship, and they cross the borders. Oman is unique in the region, not just when it comes to Yemen um, and, and its entire thing. It is the only Gulf country that, that wasn't in war, that didn't join decisive storm. It has architected its own uh, position very uniquely in the region. No one else has been that. Um, and in the in a very mean time, it even welcomed Netanyahu um, and actually did something more than more than anyone was expecting. Um, on the long term, Oman will have a lot of problems with UAE in Mahra, but not with Saudi. Um, they are, however, they feel more and more very, especially recently. They feel squeezed in Mahra. Um, in another word, they're joining the Me Too movement. You know, I'm like I'm also being harassed. Here, leave me alone and leave that stuff. But they are smart. Um, their relationship with Houthis, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, is actually more important than the relationship between the Houthis and the Iranians. Uh, in 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 a, in a lot of ways, and for many reasons, including the Omani plane, including many other aspects and and the influence they have on them. Um, uh, it has its own way of work in Yemen, and it has been the number one winner uh, on Yemen. If you look the last uh, three years, they have held releasing hostages for the UK, the US, the French, and many other countries, giving them very carefully as favors to Western countries, um, but also t as favors to the Houthis. Um, in a lot of ways and in different things. It's definitely a winner so far. Uh, however, forget about Yemen, but it's overall about Oman and its strategy in the region. Uh, let's see what will happen after Sultan Qaboos dies. Hmm? Probably after him and the Kuwait dies. These are the last two old school, careful Gulf rulers, and I think their death will reshape the future of the GCC <coughs> deal and its relationship with the region, not just with Yemen. Uh, following up on that, <coughs> what about the Qatari money through Oman? Yes, not just through Oman. Uh, Qatar is a new player in Yemen. It's very quick, very dynamic. And now even if you look to Al Jazeera, it's basically uh, the Houthi spokesperson TV channel. We actually never had much international attention on Yemen's war until Qatar was kicked out of the coalition. Uh, until then, it actually probably saved a lot of face for the coalition in many ways in Yemen. Uh, Qatar is playing not just in Mahra, it does play in Mahra, but it's playing in Ta'is, it's uh, playing in uh, other areas, and it is looking forward dancing with the Houthis. Um, it, that goes back all to the last agreement that was in Doha in 2009, 
between Saleh and the Qataris by that time, between Saleh and the Houthis via the Qataris. Um, but yeah, it is. It doesn't get called out in it, but Qatar is another destructive issue uh, or a country when it comes to Yemen. <coughs> if you maintain, if you look map out the GCC countries, you can expect, whether in Yemen or everywhere, you can expect nothing good from Saudi, UAE and Qatar. You can expect nothing good or bad from Bahrain. You can expect, you cannot, you can expect maybe something good from Kuwait and Oman, but definitely nothing bad. These are the f six countries, I think, and how they are architecting um, their, their vision in the region. Yeah, what role do you believe a future Yemeni state would play in the Iranian-Saudi kind of Cold War in the Middle East at the moment? Do you feel like the Saudis have kind of cut off any potential of a relationship with the future Yemeni state, um, mainly just due to, due to the airstrikes and the immense uh, human like humanitarian loss? At play. Do you feel like, also to add on to that as well, the Houthis have gained far more support than they potentially would have like a decade ago through any other means as a result of this war? I don't think the Houthis gained support. I think the Houthis gained more weapons. They do have some support among part-time leftists and sectarian folks and, uh, and uh, liberal apologists, uh, whether in the region or in the West. Uh, but domestically, the Houthis Anyone who lives under their uh, role is basically living in, in hell. Um, that applies in Sana'a, in Sa'da, everywhere else. This is the Taliban for us. You gotta understand that, ultimately. Um, the way they have imposed their strict life model on the Yemenis and on the areas they control. I think Yemen will remain, unfortunately, a very cheap proxy zone between the Iranians and the Saudis, and that's a problem. This is the poorest, second poorest country in the region. And you have a lot of uh, political parties who have no commitment domestically. So, of course, you know, you will have the same uh, uh, parties switching sides with the region. Um, but ultimately, that will not be good for Yemen. Um, whether we have a strong state or a state at all to start with in Yemen is unfortunately a Saudi decision uh, and depends on their policy in Yemen and how they um, do or don't do or continue to misdo. Yeah, business in Yemen. Well. Do you believe the relationship with the Saudis is at a point of no return? In a hypothetical situation, if a Yemeni state is to emerge, do you believe like the Yemeni people, to kind of put it simply, won't forgive what the Saudis have done in this war that's been going on for years now? I mean, if you have been being bombed by your neighbor for three years, I don't know how you can have good feelings about that um, at all. But I know, for example, that I'm for sure that the Houthis war with the Saudis are not because uh, it's not similar to the Houthis fight with the Saudis is not similar to Hezbollah's fight with Israel because they think it's the enemy. If they're fighting the Saudis because they have not found yet a way to be their best friend, to be added to their payrolls, to actually be their local contractors. So for the Houthis, this isn't in any way a principled war. This is looking for to be added into that. Within the ordinary Yemenis, that's a different story. I do know, however, that the current Saudi labor laws that they're doing in Saudis will kill more Yemenis and will harm and destruct Yemen more than the, the, the war itself. It has kicked out hundreds of thousands of people over the last two years from Saudi. And that definitely will leave no good a legacy or, or no good uh, reputation for Saudis. This, is, this will increase the, uh, the historical 
feeling in Yemen of grievances and abuse by Saudis, which goes back to even 1990. In 1990, Ali Abdullah Saleh voted or sided with Saddam Hussein. What did Saudis do the second day? They kicked out 800,000 Yemeni laborers. And that's why we are today living in this destruction of how much harm that left. And it definitely didn't leave a good feelings. And I don't think it will leave a good feeling by now. And I think that will cause more hatred for Saudi um, than the war itself in the long term. Because also what happened when the Saudis intervened, okay, think about it from a southern point of view. Say you're someone in Aden. You suddenly wake up and suddenly you have an army of the Houthis come take over the city. So, and what happened? The Saudis came to liberate you from your, the Houthis. So that's not exactly the same feeling you would imagine that probably in Sana'a, whereas there is also has been uh, only the bombings of the, Houthi, of the Saudis for the last three years. In fact, in the eyes of many people in the South, the Saudis liberated them, whether true or not, whether it has a reality or, but that's the feeling it has been there. What the Houthis have done is they broke the, the Machiavellian number one role which is when a foreigner comes, all of these oppressed will side with him. Uh, and they oppressed a lot of people in Aden, and they basically did a military campaign in the south, Hadaida and Eb everywhere. And of course, that creates a different dynamic of relationship. Uh, the problem is if people were on the same page with the Houthis, I think this would have created uh, an exclusive long-term hatred for the Saudis. But right now, they do share that hatred with the Houthis in a lot of ways. Um, to many Yemenis, whether in Sana'a, the Houthis were not distributing roses. Uh, they were people bombing people and killing them and taking power by force, ultimately. So uh, they share that with the Houthis. The only thing that's saving the Saudis a bit uh, is the fact that the Saudis are also, are the Houthis that have been also another terrible group within Yemen. Uh, just to follow up, uh, talk about the relationship between the so-called legitimate government and the Saudis. I don't know if it's a relationship or a contract. I know. I mean, it's, the word relationship is big to use it between these two. I mean, it's a relationship equals equality, equals respect, equals self-belief. But that doesn't seem to be the case. I think uh, they are stuck with them more than they are actually happy with them. I think the Saudis too are very frustrated with Hadi and his government failure and corruption um, and also the way it has been going. Um, so they are, but they are stuck with that. Hadi is their only excuse for the war in Yemen. Mm. So they can't really, he, he can't blackmail them easily. Uh, he almost have this, you know, legitimacy card that they waved at the world. Huh? And he's like, yeah, yeah, give me or I'll throw it to the sea. I'll throw it to the sea. So it's not a comfortable relationship or a, a one that's built on trust and agenda and uh, partnership. Um, that's one thing. But I think it would be interesting also <coughs> to look is the relationship within, within the Yemeni government itself is very fractured. The relationship within the coalition itself is very fractured. Everyone also has their own agenda and their own games. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's complicated, you know, <laughs> in a brief. There's a question here towards the back. Yeah, um, a while back you were alluding to the fact that in the past year the Houthis have kind of taken a, a stronger turn toward 12 or Shia yeah. as opposed to the Zaydi ideology. Yeah. I wanted to ask, is there a potential for that to backfire internally and create some, some fissures within the movement itself? Is there any chance of, of that happening? If so, what could the potential fallout of something like that? Yes. If the, Houthis, if the Saudis didn't intervene in Yemen, 
All of the Yemenis would have been already in a war with the Houthis, but most importantly, there, had, there would have been a clash within the Houthis themselves, the group. The only thing that's unifying right now is there is an enemy. So until that, I mean, the only thing that will ever probably defeat the Houthis is peace. This is a group, its only comfort zone is war. And it's actually every time there has been war, they have kind of created the solidarity even around more radical and fake and something they don't like of an, of an ideology overall. So yes, but that requires peace. Um, at the moment, uh, they will uh, remain to feel threatened by an external actor, so it's not going to happen yet so far. Uh, but let's see how that goes in the next, uh, in the next probably post-finalist round of this bloody war. There's a question at the back. Thank you, Farah. It's great to see you here. Uh, I'm from Lebanon. And we've touched upon a bit upon the issue of public, Yemeni public opinion. But I was hoping I could hear from you some sort of, sort of comprehensive, if there is one, a comprehensive view on what the Yemeni public thinks at this point. Uh, what, what, to what extent are you tired? To what extent do they want peace? Like the Houthis, what are the dynamics of Yemeni public opinion? I mean, I, I don't do polling, neither I believe in them because they said Trump is going to lose. Um, <laughs> but um, but I do, I do, I mean, I was in Sana'a in May. I was last time in September. I went to Hadramaut, Abiyan, Shabwa, Aden. And the, since I get all over the countries, everyone is fed up. Everyone is starving. It's a three years of bloody war. We have two planes right now that serves 27 million people. There has been no paralyzation of movement. No society has suffered more than this in the entire world. And it has suffered. You know, we haven't gotten to the level of Syrians, which is, oh, the world have abandoned us and, we hate, and everyone hates us. But there is that bitterness so far and that kind of feeling. You know, even right now, when you see something right, for example, of, on Khashoggi, the international attention into it, a lot of people in Yemen are saying, what the hell? This has been happening to us for four years. We have been going through so much worse and this international media and organizations and even government's hypocrisy. Uh, suddenly one, which is, I mean, but it, there is, domestically speaking, there is an absolute sense of frustration. Um, in, in, in Sana'a, I bet you there are more people more anti the Houthis than there is in Riyadh. Um, in Adan, I bet you there are people more anti the government than there is in Sana'a. Um, that's again because of how just life has been rare and impossible and little. Um, that's domestically speaking. Internationally, I think regionally there's another level of frustration. Is Everyone in Yemen believes that, okay, the, you know, the Arab neighbors and the, all the even Palestinians and Egyptians and Sudanese and everyone whom we have been good friends with and good people too have basically sided or when the way when they decided to help us, they decided to be part of a war against us. Um, and then I guess that's on the regional level and on the international level, it's that sense of basically hypocrisy and bitterness. And uh, I mean, uh, if you talk to someone tomorrow, probably about the UN human rights in Yemen, you know, he'll slap you. He's like, oh, look what's happening to us, you know, and, and you're watching internationally, not just watching, you're part of this war and you're part of this starvation. So yeah, it's not a good feeling, if I may put it in one, in two words. Yeah. Anton LaGuardia, given everything you've said about uh, how each side benefits in some way from this war, um, what do you think are the incentives for them to make peace, as you say, is within reach, uh, firstly. Um, second, to, and on the question of the uh, supposed legitimate government, uh, what, um, 
do you hear about the degree to which it facilitates arms shipments to the Houthis? Um, I mean, I don't think any of these sites have any incentive for peace because if they did, uh, they wouldn't start this war uh, uh, to start with. But I think that they can be pushed into it. And uh, if Yemeni, what's right now adding into the incentives of war? You have very poor country, and you have a civil war inside it, and you have rich neighbors paying. Mm -hmm. So if you cut this money that comes from the outside, then you offer of course, we'll take this entire level of conflict into a lot less interest, and it will be more costly for them and more uh, problematic. Um, and again, that requires, I think, decreasing of the regional aspect of this, whether Iranians, but specifically the Gulf at the moment, who pays everyone who wants to fight in Yemen. Um, and that's something you push, you don't wish for. Um, you don't wish for peace, you push for it. Um, and that uh, needs to, to happen at the moment, and I don't see it. On the war economy, my short answer is there is a paper we just published a few weeks ago at Sana'a Center, and it's almost a book mapping out the entire war economy in Yemen. And if you track, you can, you can check it out uh, uh, online, uh, and it tracks this entire money industry and this entire uh, uh, benefits of the war economy. And you look into it, and this is what's fascinating about, it, about the war economy as a narrative to explain any war in the region, even in Syria is you have uh, uh, an economic interest that goes all the way from the son of Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi in Riyadh to the brother of Abdul Malik Al-Houthi in Sa'da. An entire, um, we actually have an editorial about this coming in this month's report saying that in our opinion, the number one or the best place for negotiation in Yemen is not Sweden or Stockholm. It actually should be the black market because that's where every side meets that's why they meet all the time, and that's where they make deals all the time. Um, this economic interest have been going between all of these sides um, around business. I know at one point when I was, you look to Marib and Sayoun and uh, Shabwa. These are the three capitals of war economy and the smuggling in Yemen. Um, and you have people do business. You had uh, one point, for example, I saw in Sana'a weapons that were given by the Saudis to their alliance before they reached the, the alliance themselves, they reached the Houthis. Uh, at one point even in Marib, you would do an exchange of uh, weapons, the, the Houthis because they lacked the snipers, so they bought the snipers. And the other guys, they lacked AK-47, so they did an exchange and they bought an AK-47. Um, and this is only a very, very small cycle within the larger one um, that goes regionally. I think what would be more interesting than even the weapons is the fuel smuggling and the fuel industry from a war economy point of view. The fuel economy, uh, which this uh, research found, goes all the way from Tehran to Dubai, uh, believe it or not, to Oman, and crosses by the legal checkpoint, and the crosses by the government checkpoint, and goes all the way to Sana'a. And that's how the Houthis make money from Tehran. They get the uh, uh, fuel, and it goes through all of these cycles and the front lines very correctly. And that has been a, probably the number one source of money the last uh, few years is this smuggled wealth, this smuggled uh, uh, oil, um, <coughs> which goes all around the country and in the regionally. Uh, but yeah, that, that's it. Any more questions? I might just finish with one as we have got five minutes, which is we've talked about the parallel or possible parallels and differences with the Syrian conflict, and one of the, at least on the surface, contrasts is the, the lack of the 
refugee flow mm. that you have in the Syrian conflict and the in the Yemen conflict. So we know there's internal displacement, mm. but why there why is there not that mass movement mm. for over borders? Uh, well, in, in, and, and we joke about this in Yemen. We say this is the only war in the world where the government is the only refugees. People are in, <laughs> inside. We, we stay inside Yemen. Um, and that actually probably why there isn't much international attention on Yemen. Because in, especially in the West, your, your political interest is, and, and this is the problems of democracy, is so short-sighted that it only cares about issues that actually are on an electoral level, even if they are strategically more problematic and more dangerous. For that, there are a few reasons. First, all of our borders are sealed. I mean, you cannot cross the Saudis. It's a piece of hell. Um, the, also, I mean, it's, it's very well protected. This is the thing is, and this is what's really tragic about Yemen's war, is you do not even have the right to flee. You don't have the chance to try the sea. You don't have the chance to die in a boat. You don't have the chance to even be looked at as a, in the beach. You have to die inside Yemen, and you have to be, if not by a Houthi, then by an airstrike, and if not by either, then by starvation. And no one will know about it. This is one of the probably most uh, heartbreaking things about this war. You can't flee anywhere. You're stuck inside and you will be killed inside. Of course, there's the borders. Yemen is far also. Um, the other end of, you look to the map, is the Horn of Africa, which ac we actually have uh, 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 refugees the other way around. We have one million refugees from the Horn of Africa, actually, in Yemen. Um, that goes to Yemen. There isn't really, if you run there, you're running from the desert to hell. Um, and then again, you have a very well-shielded borders with the Saudis. But there are a few other, and Omanis. There are also other, I think, reasons, which is Yemenis overall don't flee. Like, first, there is a geographical reason for that. The country is 5,500, yeah, 555,000 square kilometers. So that's where we have a lot of IDBs. So usually you have a problem in Sana'a, you run to Sa'ada. You have a war in Sa'ada, you run to Adan. There is an internal IDBs, that's why we have a three million. But also the nature of the Yemenis don't flee overall. Yemenis don't actually, uh, as, as a society, as a, from even anthropological point of view, don't really, you know, they respect their food and cut too much. And they don't find good, good, good part of it internationally. It's part of the Yemeni. That's why, I mean, again, that this government to Yemenis is an internationally recognized government, but it's not a locally recognized one. Um, they don't understand how can some Yemeni live outside for three years. You know, that's something doesn't cross or doesn't actually uh, make sense from a Yemeni point of view. Um, therefore, it's, I mean, again, we don't really uh, uh, flee from that point of view. And it's expensive. I never forget that. Uh, all the upper class and the intelligentsia class and those who actually were able to go have already gone, who have a means of doing that. You now have a country when you go into Sana'a, I mean, it's scary. It's the capital of a militia. Only those with guns there. And this, as a young man, probably terrifies me, is we will be left with engineering, doctors, physicians, and professional people have gone the country. And all of those left inside are the armed people. I mean, and I don't know how you can build a society in that. I don't know how you can actually build a vision later on or actually try to rebuild this country if everyone who has any skill is gone, other than fighting. Um, but yes, I mean, those who are rich and, and are, are actually uh, already gone, but uh, which are very little mm. to start with. They're not, they're not much anyways, in that sense. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I
hope we can finish on a more positive note, but it's very difficult in uh, that part Well, the, the good world, news is Sweden is a really good news. You underestimate, no, yeah. you underestimate how really this is important, even symbolically. For two and a half years, there was not even an attempt to talk about that, and, and I think it's, it's something that one should uh, keep praying for if they believe in God. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much.